Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, there is no question that digital health is going to be a critical part of the future of healthcare delivery. I've started to call it the great enabler. And today we're going to have a chance to speak with someone who is at the tip of that spear and is really helping to guide the ship. Dr. Evie Cunningham is the digital health officer at Providence, one of the largest and most progressive healthcare systems in the country. Now, before I formally introduce Dr. Cunningham, I'd like to share with you the publication of my second book. It's called Beyond the Walls. It's about the megatrends, the humanistic movements, and the market disruptors that are transforming American healthcare. And in fact, part one of the book is on this topic of digital health. The book is an odyssey into the courageous entrepreneurs, the trailblazing leaders, and the organizations that are going beyond the walls of our legacy healthcare system to create a more personalized, effective, and humane system of care. The book is different from most others in this genre in that it's not about what's wrong in American healthcare. Instead, it's actually about what's right and what we should be doing more of, which I believe we're going to hear about in this podcast episode. Now, the book is available on Amazon. It was actually the number one new release in hospital administration on Amazon. I also just want to add that all proceeds from this book are being donated to Feeding America a nonprofit dedicated to eliminating hunger nationwide. I am so excited. I've had the opportunity to listen to Dr. Cunningham speak at a forum, and she's a beyond-the-walls leader. She currently serves as the group vice president and chief of virtual care and digital health for Providence. Her responsibilities include several virtual care service lines, hospital at home, remote patient monitoring programs, virtual nursing teams. I'd love to hear more about that. Digital product incubation and digital clinical content creation team. So much to explore with Dr. Cunningham. She joined Providence St. Joseph Health in 2017 as the chief medical officer of the their Southwest Group. She's a board-certified physician in obstetrics and gynecology and has practiced for over a dozen years. Dr. Cunningham received her medical degree at St. Louis University School of Medicine and did her postgraduate residency training at Kaiser Los Angeles Medical Center. She received a master's in business administration from the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Evie, I'm so, so, so delighted to finally have the opportunity to have you on the show, especially after we met a few months ago. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for giving me this opportunity to chat with you, Bev, that you are a, a force of nature and very well known in, in this community. So it's it's really an honor to be here. Well, Evie, I'm going to let my wife uh, hear that part that I'm a force of nature because uh, she's got some <laughs> other terminology. But listen, uh, you are so special in so many ways. I just want you to be yourself here. And I know you will be because that's who you are. I'm assuming that the vast majority of people don't even know what a digital health officer, a virtual care health officer, what it is that you do at a very high level. Why is there a position like yours in a hospital healthcare system? What's your purpose in being there? And then we'll dive into some of the more granular uh, roles and responsibilities. 
Yeah, I mean, I think at a, a really high level, our role is to be a catalyst and accelerator for transformational change across the organization. And we have to change the way we deliver care by leveraging new technologies. And there's a, just a significant amount of change management that's involved in that process and disruption, you know, that's involved in that process. So our team are, we're really experts. We're subject matter experts in being able to go into a clinical space and help stand up new programs that allow us and enable us to deliver care in a different way. We also own some of these programs. We have some enterprise services that really lend themselves to be services that, you know, should be stretched across our eight state footprint. And so we own the operations. So we do a, a mix of strategic implementations and support for the system from a, a care transformation perspective, and then also owning some of our own operations soup to nuts. Well, I'd love to explore that point you're making about owning some of it and not owning some of it and what that means. And maybe you can answer that, respond to that in the context of the different programs that you have. That would be super helpful to hear about that. Right. So I can't take all the credit for all of the amazing work that this team does. I do want to point out that I took over leadership of the virtual care digital health team about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago. And prior to that, I think Providence really had been on the forefront of building out telemedicine programs at scale. I mean, one of the largest probably in the country, I would say, for a nonprofit healthcare system. So really the way that we look at it is we look at it almost in three different buckets. In, in one bucket, we're almost like a shared service in the sense that we have all the subject matter expertise around regulatory workflows, technology enablement for clinical best practices for delivering virtual care. So ambulatory care, for example, they have their own infrastructure, they, they have medical groups and teams with leadership, but they don't have necessarily the expertise on, you know, before COVID, they didn't have any expertise around like, how do we do virtual visits? So our team came in and helped them get set up, get their workflows going, understand how to bill, what the regulatory restraints were regarding that. And so we stay on top of that and we guide and provide consultative services. And then we have program collaborations or incubations, and that's sort of the, the middle tier of services that we provide. And that's where we own a piece of the operations, or we do the business development, the ROI analysis, we help find the technology vendors and bring and weave those together. We might own a component of the operations. And then the site where we're implementing that program also owns a component and has responsibility on their end. So for example, mm -hmm. the hospital at home program that we have, we do a lot of the program management, the project management, we help orchestrate all of the logistics. And then on the site side, they own some of the operational components of the program. So we kind of do that together. We also do the same model with our co-caring program, which is the virtual nursing program that you mentioned. But then the third bucket is where we own the operation soup to nuts. And those are what we call enterprise programs. And those are programs where we have 
services that we deliver across the system. And we also deliver externally specifically to hospitals that are within our network where there might be opportunities to provide outreach for teleprograms. And these are hospitals that refer patients or transfer patients in and out of our hospital system. So there's throughput outcomes and things that you want to be able to impact by having those services there. And those are programs like Telestroke, for example, where we have 92 hospitals that we cover for telestroke with two neurologists during the day or two neurologists at night and three neurologists during the day. And if you can imagine, that's that's an amazing capability of being able to stretch clinician capacity in that way. We have such a shortage of neurologists. So it's a specialty that really lends itself to be delivered at scale. We also have that with a telehospitalist program. We have telepsychiatry. We're launching teleinfectious disease later this year. We have added additional neurology services like emergent teleneurology and teleneurohospitalists and teleEEG. And so the different hospitals that we deliver these services to They can kind of pick from the menu of different things. And then we provide the technology and the digital access support to beam those clinicians in when they're needed for consultation. And so that's been really amazing and impactful, but we're also very strategic about which specialties we select to be in that bucket of enterprise services. Not every specialty really lends itself to be delivered at scale that way. So you have to be kind of selective and thoughtful about what makes the most sense. For example, tele-NICU, for example, that probably lends itself better to being more of a regional program, because if you're going to be transferring NICU babies back and forth to different facilities, you probably want a more regional tele-outreach support model because relationships and familiarity with the people who are delivering the care is so critical in that type of a specialty. So that's kind of the, the thought process and discernment process we go through when we figure out which specialties really lend themselves to scale. And then there's one other area that I didn't mention as much, and that is around digital products. We've actually been incubating a digital product called MedPearl that is basically a digital assistant for providers to help them with specialty referrals when they're referring patients to specialists. And we've been incubating that for about two years at Providence, and now it's scaled across the organization and it's going really, really well. And that particular product is also, we own all of the operations. That's what the digital clinical content team you mentioned at the beginning, that's where they fit in. And that's kind of a new paradigm, a new service that we've started uh, providing to the organization. Wow. So many questions to ask you. You know what I really, really appreciate about the way you're approaching this. And I I think it's probably very different than what I've heard others discuss and talk about, because you kind of hear about the shiny and like, you know, how amazing it is and all this sort of stuff. And, but what you don't hear about is the stuff you're talking about, which is how do we actually think about curating this, integrating it, deploying it, the, 
you know, it's the non-sexy stuff. It's the operational stuff. It's the integration, the workflow, making tough decisions about, like you're saying, what specialties make sense and what don't. And I love the way you, you know, you're even saying, look, you know, there's some things that we completely operationalize. There, there's other things that are sort of a hybrid and there's some that where we're just the consultant coming in and helping to set it up and deploy it, but it's really run by a different division. Really, really insightful, you know, giving us a sense of what's the reality of how this works and sort of picking up on that. We'll get to some of these questions. I'm really hoping today, I guess, just stepping back for a second before we get into, into some of that. In terms of the why, I was talking to a physician sort of expert in virtual the other day, and his question to me was, so is digital and virtual really helping healthcare? And I guess my question to you is, you know, for someone who isn't so familiar with this, or even for those who are, and the, the question is, this is a new thing. We've got, you know, limited resources, especially now. I wonder, uh, you know, some organizations, healthcare systems across the country, even pulling back from digital or slowing down their digital deployment. I'm curious about your thoughts about that, but what's the why? Is this critically important? And in terms of actual patient care? And if so, why? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, that's a great, great question. And I mean, I am emphatically saying absolutely, it is critical to our survival going into the future. I, let me give you some context on, on the way I look at it. So I just went to the American Hospital Association conference last week, and there was a futurist there. And she said something that I think about pretty much every day since that really kind of resonates with me. The first thing she said was, hey, when we were kids, right, in our, our generation, Gen X, boomers, if a kid was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? 20% of the time, the kid would say, I want to be a doctor. I want to work in healthcare, right? And today, when you ask a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? One third of children will say, I want to be a social media influencer and healthcare doesn't even register. So if we think we have a workforce challenge today, which we have a very significant workforce challenge, and we're heading towards an even more significant workforce challenge, what is it going to be like with the generation in the future? The children of today are completely turned off by healthcare because of what they saw happen with COVID. So hopefully maybe we'll win back some of their hearts and minds over time. But I think that our only path forward is with reorganizing our workforce to leverage technology, virtual, digital, to automate the things that just are stupid stuff that doesn't make sense for people to be doing. That's the only way we're gonna get ourselves out of the situation that we're in right now. We are experiencing such a shortage. We have over 600 open positions for specialist providers at Providence. I mean, Providence is huge. We're 52 hospitals. We have 10,000 employed providers. And our time to fill most of those positions, the average time to fill is like nine months for some of these specialties. So how do you address that, right? You address it by stretching the capacity of the knowledge and the capacity of your clinician workforce. And you can do that with technology. That's what we're doing with these scaled programs. Our telepsychiatry program, we hit 43 hospitals with one psychiatrist and one social worker. Think about that. 
Think about how many psychiatrists you would need and how much time they would be spending in the car if they had to physically go to these sites. And we are very tactical and very practical about measuring the ROI and the impact that these services are making. And I think part of the reason people have gotten burnt out on it or are sort of poo-pooing it or not really like as, you know, wondering and questioning the value is because, you know, there was a lot of experimentation. COVID just blew everything up. People weren't really tracking on like, what is the value of these services? How do I measure the, the value? How should it be resourced properly? What is the right technology? So, you know, there's been some disenchantment because I think people have gotten burned. We talked about this at that conference, you know, that I met you at as well. And so people are kind of exhausted, but it needs to happen. It's so critical. We have a shortage of physicians and then we have a wave of boomers, right? It's going to peak in 2030. So if we think we're having challenges now with access and capacity, wait until 2030. So we have to do this now. So we're ready for what's coming in the future. And it is, it's disruptive, it's change management, it's difficult work. You're going to have people who are naysayers, who aren't going to believe in it. All of that can be overcome with time, with the right leadership, with the right discussions, but you also have to have really good strategy around how you're going to do this, right? And capable people, because it's tough work, but it it's critical. Yeah, it's hard to implement. And we'll get back to that in a second. That number that you shared, one psychiatrist and one social worker to how many hospitals? 43. 43 hospitals. And I'm in my mind, I'm answering your question, which is, if we didn't have virtual and digital care, how many psychiatrists and social workers would we need for 43 hospitals? And here's the other piece of it, Zev. Many of these hospitals are small critical access hospitals or small community hospitals. They don't have enough volume to support having a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. So what do they do today if they don't have this service? They transfer. They transfer the patients to the bigger hospitals. Well, our bigger hospitals are completely over capacity. I'll give you an example. In Olympia, we have this 380, almost 400 bed hospital called St. Peter's. On any given day, we have 40 boarders in the ER. So if those smaller hospitals that are surrounding that big hospital didn't have telepsychiatry, didn't have telestroke, didn't have telehealth, right. they would transport all those patients in. They cannot handle more patients. So what we do is we do outreach into these smaller hospitals, smaller facilities, and we empower the people boots on the ground to keep the patients there. Right. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, is even if it was a hospital that had enough capacity or had enough volume to potentially support having an on-site service in many of these places, it's very difficult to recruit. There is a huge disparity in rural America around where clinicians and physicians want to live. And there's just there's certain sites in certain areas of the country where they just don't have the ability to recruit successfully. So from a health equity perspective, rural health perspective, these programs have been tremendously impactful. Alaska is, we have a lot, a lot of hospitals and a, a huge footprint in Alaska. And I mean, they're one of our biggest partners because they need our services and they're so impactful for those communities. Yeah. That is so helpful to understand. And I suspect a lot of administrators, senior executives don't really understand the value proposition. I, I love just 
you know, you mentioned rural health care, the huge, huge problem here in rural health care in this country. This is one of the major ways to address it. Disparities and inequities of care you just mentioned, um, access, of course. And the cost is there's so much involved in that, that just that statement about cost, because as you're pointing out, number one, when you can't get this sort of access to to patients in hospitals, and I'm imagining, obviously, just think about telestroke, and you know, and we know it's literally seconds that are critical in terms of the brain dying, and so they have that technology, the expertise, the medications to get that right away to the patient to save their brain. It's huge in terms of life and limb and what that means to the individual and their family. And of course, the enormous costs that are saved just as a result of that. The same thing with infectious disease. To have an infectious disease doctor beam into a hospital and actually give the right medication, the right antibiotic, as opposed to waiting days for it to happen, uh, or to your point, the transfer, which is thousands of dollars. And so, I mean, it's literally, you're talking about moving electrons around as opposed to, you know, tens of thousands of dollars that could be wasted, you know, literally with any given patient, again, just in terms of the outcomes of care and the impact it has on that patient and the individual. So I really think this exposition, this explanation of why, if you're a patient or a family member of a patient and, and you're wondering why are they doing digital, why are they doing virtual? Well, here's your answer. Do you want to go into a hospital and they have to tell you, yeah, you know, the neurologist is driving in. It's going to take 30, 45 minutes. Your brain is dying. It's gone permanently. And, you know, or do you want to be that person with an infection? Or do you want to be that person with a severe behavioral health episode who's sitting in that ED for days? And so I think from a patient perspective, this is so critical. And from a healthcare system perspective, and and, I, and even from a, you know, we talk about burnout and demoralization. I have this image of, you know, physicians like yourself, you train for years and years. And then of course you get this tremendous expertise that you develop over time when you practice. And all of that value is locked up in an exam room somewhere inside of a building somewhere, you know, and in order to get to that value, I've got to get to that exact location, that exact building, that exact clinic, that exact room to get that. And I think what this virtual care, what you're doing is unleashing that value in a way that's never happened before so that I can have your wisdom and your experience, you know, and your passion and your professionalism anywhere, right? And literally by turning, flipping a bunch of switches and getting you beamed in. And so we talk about value and you're right. Yeah, I've heard people say we may not actually, we, we obviously do have a shortage of physicians, but it actually may not be so much that as that if you use physicians and leverage them the way you did a hundred years ago, yeah. Yeah, we have a shortage, but why not use the technology? Right. I mean, I'm a firm believer, and I, I tell this to my colleagues and my peers, the office visit is dead. Mm. You know, I mean, yeah. and I'm a gynecologist. So when I go to clinic and I still practice, I'm not required to, but I, I just do because I, I love patient care still. And I love seeing my peers and my patients. So I, I still do it a little bit. And when I go into clinic and I see a patient, that doesn't need an exam or a procedure. I'm like, that could have been a virtual visit. And that that's a shame because that patient had to drive. And sometimes these patients are driving an hour or two hours to come in to see us wasting their time for a 15 minute conversation that could have been done virtually. So we have to basically disrupt, you know, ourselves to some extent 
And we should be thinking about this every time we're thinking about a patient encounter. Like, could this have been done in a different way? And, you know, it kind of goes back to, I didn't mention, we have this remote patient monitoring program that we started last year. We started piloting it last year. We're going to scale this year. We have 19 clinics lined up to go live before the end of the year. It's going to impact probably 50,000 patients. It's amazing. And it's been so great to watch physicians and the clinicians as we started to adopt this realize this is such a better way for me to manage my patient with chronic hypertension. Having a patient come in every two to three months for a blood pressure check for their hypertension, that's not even in great control that I don't really get any data on, or, oh, maybe they send me a message randomly through the page of portal, but I'm not really like getting real-time data on how their blood pressure is being controlled throughout that time that they're not in the office. Now they're in a situation where we have a team who kind of ingests the data and manages the alerts and things like that. And so we're not putting burden on those primary care physicians who have those patients on their panels, but they're able to sort of oversee this process of the patient being managed at home, getting data, multiple data points throughout the month Mm -hmm. and titration of their medication getting them in guideline directed medical therapy, 5X of what they would do for CHF in the traditional office visit format, getting them in a hypertension range for our CEI metric goals and accelerating that process of being able to get them in compliance and improving our quality. And then the comments you hear is, and it's great, they've caught some things that would have ended up like the patient would have ended up in the ER if this remote monitoring program hadn't caught this high risk situation. And oh, by the way, now I can backfill that office visit with a different patient who actually needs to be seen in person. And so I think we're getting to a tipping point where there's enough, at least in our system, where there's enough buy-in and there's enough belief in what we're doing. But I'll go back to what you had said in the beginning, which is like, you've got to measure the ROI. You've got to partner with your strategic finance team or your finance team, or even tap into somebody like my team or you know experts in the field to find out how are you guys measuring this ROI How are you measuring the value and the quality and the outcomes that you're getting? And be real prescriptive about that as you make the investment to bring these programs in. And how do you ensure also that you're going to bring it to scale? Because we do a lot of skunk works. We do a lot of experimentation. You hear a lot about these programs that, you know, they try it out, but it's like 40 patients. Like, how are you going to get to the 50,000 patients that I talked to? What is your pathway to doing that? Because you got to be thinking about scale because that's really where this stuff really starts to pencil out. Yeah. You know, I love what you just said in the picture you drew. It's very parallel. So, and and by the way, I love the provocative statement. The office visit is dead. I think it's true. And as you pointed out, not quite true, but I love what you just did. You're making the office visit appropriate for the appropriate type of visit and condition and patient. So you know, like you're saying, so many of the office visits we do, and, you know, I've seen numbers being thrown around from 30 to 70% really doesn't have to come in. You you actually can get much better care not coming in, doing exactly what you just described, this remote patient monitoring. In fact, 
so much better. I mean, you know, I remember the way I practiced years ago, you know, and it's still the way, you know, practices person with diabetes, you know, they come in, they've got some numbers to, you know, on a piece of paper to show the provider, you know, then you're kind of looking and saying, okay, let's make this adjustment now. And I'll see you back in, you know, two months, three months, six months. And it's just really, is that the way we're going to practice now? Shouldn't, as you point out, those adjustments could be made on a daily, weekly basis. And, you know, looking at data that's collected and there's no need for you to come in. So, I agree. It may be, you know, for, for those not familiar with this, a large part of it is the fact that the way we get paid, you almost have to have a patient come in or you won't get paid for it. A lot of the work that's done now, you know, remotely through phone calls and through my chart and emails is either not paid for or, you know, paid less than you would if you got the patient to come into the office. And so I think that's a little bit of the challenge, but just like the hospital at home, you obviously have a hospital program. It's not so much that the hospital is going to go away, right? It's just that the hospital is going to become much more appropriate for patients who actually really need to be in a hospital versus those that could be taken care of in their home or elsewhere, like an ambulatory surgical center. So I love it. It's, it seems to me it's very, very analogous. You're right-sizing the office visit to those patients who really, really need to come in and have you know that sort of hands-on experience. And maybe it's the more complex chronic. So just kind of curious about that analogy between the hospital, home, and clinic. I suspect you've already made that connection. Yeah. I mean, the way I look at it is like, we're not building brick and mortar anymore. And that's what I heard at that AHA conference, by the way, they didn't talk about building new facilities and stuff like that. They talked about virtual, digital, and AI, right? So we're building new hospital capacity infrastructure, but it's within a person's home, right? And it's the same thing with the virtual visits in the ambulatory space. We can expand our capacity. We can expand our reach. We're just doing it with technology, with a computer screen and a video portal and a camera. And maybe there's going to be also, you know, things that get mailed to people's homes. I mean, Taito Care, for example, has that otoscope, you know, it's a digital otoscope. And so they can actually like look in the patient's ear while they're at home and give feedback. And so I think we're going to see more and more of that continuing to evolve over time. I think there's also going to be quite a bit of innovation in the care in the home models for like sniff at home or for elder care at home where people will have their homes wired up with sensors and monitors that can kind of track because we don't have enough capacity for our skilled nursing facilities and nursing homes with what's coming in the next five to 10 years as well. Yeah. From a business perspective and a healthcare delivery perspective, I love what you just said. It's, I think you really captured it. This really is about building capacity not by building new brick and mortar facilities, but by building capacity in people's homes. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really cool. And quick question, this remote patient monitoring, do you have a separate team that is dedicated to doing this remote patient monitoring and the patient still belongs to, it's kind of funny that I said it that way, patient belongs as if a patient belongs to anybody, <laughs> but, the, but the primary care provider is still someone else or are you building it into, so, so is it, I would see patients, but in addition, I would be doing a remote, remote, what direction are you going? If not, maybe both. Yeah. So we have both our own separate teams that manage these patients internally, and we have a partner that we work with. So we have a partner that we work with for remote patient monitoring, and they provide the clinical team 
that basically acts as an extension of the primary care provider. So I wouldn't say they no patient belongs to anyone, but they're impaneled, right? So a right. primary care provider has an, a panel of patients. Mm-hmm. They're impaneled with the patients. The patients are impaneled with that primary care provider. We take a population health approach to evaluating which patients would be the best served by the remote patient monitoring. And we use outcomes data from the pilot that we went through last year to sort of identify the ideal patient selection parameters for where we think the biggest impact would be. And so those primary care providers are basically, they have the decision-making around whether or not they're going to offer the program to the patient. Mm -hmm. So we give them a list and then they kind of, they go through and they say, yeah, let's offer it to these hundred patients on my panel. And then when those patients come in to be seen and things like that, they'll accept the, the program. Then they get enrolled right there at the clinic. And our partner actually embeds enrollers in the clinic, which is great because our staff, our caregivers, our team of nurses and MAs, they don't have time to spend a half an hour enrolling a patient in a remote patient monitoring program because they're so busy with everything else they're doing. And we have about 60 to 70% of the patients accept the opportunity to sign up for the program when offered. And the retention rate after a year is 85%. Wow. It's amazing. We have about 400 patients on the program right now. We did not scale beyond what we have right now for this past year, not because there wasn't desire, but more because we were waiting for the EMR integration. There's manual workflows involved until you get that EMR integration process going. So that is going to be done next month. And we have 19 clinics, like I said, lined up, very eager to take this program on. And the other thing that I think is really important I talked about the change management. It's very important to have clinical sponsorship for these types of programs. And I call myself a doctor whisperer or a provider whisperer. I mean, I'm very schooled in change management because I've been brave enough to try to bring all of these sort of disruptive programs forward throughout my career, not just technology, but even just different models of care. I'm sure you've done the same. But you also want to build an army of peers that can do the same. And we can convince each other. It's an internal thing that needs to happen amongst each other to get us to change, you know, the way that we're doing things and to overcome some of those barriers. So it's great to see, you know, the clinicians who have been doing this now for a year influence other clinicians and peers that this is actually really great, you know? to do this. It's, it's going to be fun. And then you wait, you know, some people are more hesitant, but over time, as you get to a critical mass, pretty much everybody starts to get on board. And that's what we're starting to see with so many of these programs. Yeah. It's really lovely. Yeah. What type of patient is sort of the criteria you use to, to decide which is the appropriate patient, that list that you hand the doctors? Is it that you're looking for the lower acuity, you know, mild kind of chronic disease, moderate chronic disease? What makes a patient ideal for this sort of remote patient monitoring follow-up? Yeah. So we actually, when we started the pilot, we cast a wide net because we wanted to learn from it to figure out who would benefit the most. And so we pretty much anybody who flagged with a diagnosis code of chronic hypertension, we're doing chronic hypertension in CHF right now. And we'll be launching diabetes and COPD next year. So anybody that had chronic hypertension or or congestive heart failure diagnosis or both was offered the program. And what we found was the people who had really, really mild disease, 
there wasn't a very significant impact in the sense that they were already pretty much in good control. So you're adding cost and potential. I mean, it's good from an educational perspective for those patients. And if their conditions were worsening, it could have been caught, but we didn't really see a very significant impact with those, that cohort. So it was really more kind of the middle stage patients that, you know, maybe aren't in the best control, aren't the most compliant, also patients where it's, you know, very inconvenient for them to come because it's a long drive. Obviously you have to think about making sure that they have the technology knowledge. We, we selected a partner that used very basic and simple technology. It's cell phone, text-based, there's no apps, there's no Bluetooth. All of the devices are cellular enabled. So their strategy lends themselves very well to the, the boomer population who may not have mm-hmm. as much tech savviness. And so we, that's really where we've learned has been the most impact when it comes to the more severe disease patients with more severe or less control or a lot more hospital readmissions, the program can still be extremely beneficial, but we also typically would add more resources with care management to try to sort of make sure that we're handholding those patients. And we don't want to confuse the patients with multiple programs. So we do have a very robust care management team that's on site that does our, we have these RN clinical navigators and they do CCM and T transitional care management. And so we typically won't have them do both programs. We'll pick one or the other. So I would say the more complex patients typically go with our on-site program get more holding there. Right. I think you said a couple of interesting and important things. One of which was, you know, I think the way we typically approach these things is very much like from our need. So not wanting to choose the, you know, easier patients because they're it's kind of adding cost, not the complex ones because it's going to be too hard and not appropriate. And so we choose that middle one. But you then said, hey, there's another criteria which is actually not about us. It's about the patient, which mm-hmm. is, you know, for someone who has to travel a long distance, you know, that is a criteria. And so what that made me think is what other type of actual patient-centered criteria are we using or are using? In fact, the question that came into my mind is why not ask the patients themselves if they want to be in this program? We do. And we absolutely do. And they certainly have an opportunity to decline it. They're not required to be part of the program. So we don't want to force patients into a program like this. But I, like I said, we have a pretty high acceptance rate They Mm -hmm. seem to be very engaged and they like the program because they feel like there's somebody always there that they can connect with. Right. 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 They can message the program anytime, 24 seven. Yeah. Another issue you raised is, and it sounds like you have both an external vendor and an internal team that's doing this. I mean, I think that's one of the big issues with, uh, in general, in healthcare is, you know, do we build it ourselves? Do we partner with someone What do you think about that? Yeah. So the internal program that we have is, I mean, Providence is an eight state health system and it's very heterogeneous. So I'll start with that. We have areas where we have a lot more value-based care contracting versus service areas where there's 98% fee for service. So it's quite a variety. So the programs that we have that are internal have typically been in areas where there was more value-based care and it was easier to pencil this out. The partner that we're working with has helped us stand these programs up in a fee-for-service environment. 
which it's been very difficult to get support for these programs in a fee-for-service environment because previously the only way you could pencil out the ROI was with capitation because you couldn't bill for these services. But now you can, there's uh, remote patient monitoring codes that are billable that you can get reimbursed for. And so we've focused our partner sites on those areas first, because we know that we're getting reimbursed and we know that the program is paying for itself. I would say the difficulty with having an internal program that I've seen is just the ability to scale because of the investment required with standing these things up. The company that we're working with, they're called Cadence for our remote patient monitoring. They've raised over a hundred million dollars. They're willing to make an investment to partner with us on their end, you know, to help stand up the service, to hire staff and things like that. So it's a partnership in a sense that we've come in with resources together. And so we don't have like millions of dollars of money up front to stand up these types of programs internally. We don't have that type of capital. Everybody's sort of struggling. So that's why I think it's really important to search for the right type of partner in technology. There's so much investment that's gone into technology from venture capital. And there are some really great companies out there that you can partner with and they come in and they have skin in the game and you have skin in the game and you build these programs together. Yeah. Thank you. That was really helpful. If I had to ask you, you know, kind of what are the pros and advantages you've already named one or two for why not build it ourselves? And so far, you know, these sorts of new offerings and services. And, you know, so far, you you know, the one answer you gave was, you know, this takes a lot of upfront investment. And if we're going to wait for that kind of investment, especially in revenue strapped times, it either is going to take forever or it's not going to happen. And so here's a way to get up, you know, get going, get up and going, get started without that upfront investment by partnering with someone who, as you point out, these external vendors, they've, you know, they, they're getting the investment and the resources from the market. So that would be reason number one. Reason number two, I think you named, is that they actually have some skills capabilities that we may not have. Like for instance, I'm assuming they know how to bill fee-for-service and they're adept at that and they're you know yeah. licensed in multiple states. And so they've already got all that infrastructure, all that regulatory you know stuff done, all the revenue kind of worked out. And so they're coming to you with, hey, we know how to do this. So there's some skills and capabilities that they're bringing to the table. What other reasons are there? And please modify the ones I've just cited. Yeah. I mean, they have engineering teams, they have technology, they have the ability to scale up. So AI, I think is just going to be such a game changer. And I know we didn't really touch on that this much, that much on that's a whole other podcast that we could have, yeah. Yeah. but I mean, it's going to be such a game changer and Providence is very, very technology forward. I have an engineering team on my team and I have a chief technology officer. And so we do build products and programs from scratch. We do a build versus buy assessment typically when we're thinking about, you know, which model we're going to use. So I can't, I'm not going to say every single thing should be done with a vendor, but I will tell you that in that discernment process and depending on what health system you are and what level of sophistication you have from your technology and IS teams, that should also help drive the decision. So if you're a smaller health system and you have you know, a small IS department that's really more focused around the EHR and a couple of the you know, administrative applications and revenue cycle, 
and you're not doing as much innovation or technology build, you're probably better off working with a vendor or a partner. And the thing is, is they desperately, desperately want access into healthcare and want to learn from us. So you got to be selective, obviously, about the right partner or vendor that you go with. But they're willing to typically come in with some investment from their end in order to be able to have access into the clinical space. And that's the value we bring to the table is we have hospitals and clinics and providers and we can provide that access. And there's huge value there to a venture-backed company or you know a, a company that's working in healthcare technology. Yeah, you know, one of the things I wrote about recently in that Beyond the Walls, and I've been thinking about this more and more, is I wonder if hospitals should start to think of themselves more of what I think actually hospitals were in the past. It's a little bit of back to the future where they're not the producers of everything that is offered to their customers or consumers, but they're actually a platform, a sort of mini Amazons where you know we have the patients, we have the communities, we have the need. So that side of the platform, but the other side of the platform is putting all the products and services that, you know, do we actually need to own it or actually produce it? And so it really is becoming a platform. The question, of course, is how do you monetize that? How do you create a revenue model and, and business model off of that? But I think, you know, that's a little bit of what I hear you saying as well. You know, as healthcare advances technologically, I think it's going to be harder and harder. I mean, it used to be just you know, to literally build everything yourselves and how many organizations can do that. And then as you're saying, it's not just building it. You've got to continuously R&D it. You know, you, you have to continuously develop it and update it. And so I wonder if we should really, as hospital systems, start to think of ourselves as that platform rather than as the sole producer of everything that's delivered. Thoughts on that? Yeah, and actually, I really love that. And I have to tell you that in addition to that, I think we need to be thinking about historically hospitals would partner up with other hospital systems and eventually merge, right? There's been all these mergers. Mm -hmm. So you can actually think about it in a different way now. Like maybe it's not a full merger of your brick and mortar hospital systems, but is there a play where you organize mm. multiple hospital systems who don't have the ability to have all of these resources themselves individually and continuously do the R&D? But is there a play where you join forces with a couple health systems for these types of resources, right? I mean, what stops yeah. us from bringing telepsychiatry to a health system in Nebraska or South Carolina that desperately needs it if we have the clinician workforce and some of the capabilities so that they don't have to build it themselves. So what types of interesting partnerships could we be doing across healthcare as a whole with different health systems who may not have the resources. And we think about that a lot. And I think at Providence, that's something that we find to be very interesting conceptually and potentially put putting it into practice in the future of how do we partner right. so that we save healthcare, right? Right, right, <laughs> right. Well, you know, there are, and I actually did write about this, there are early examples of, and smaller examples of what you're talking about where a couple of hospitals are, you know, getting together and, you know, essentially tying themselves together, not fully, just in certain things. Like for instance, we're going to create remote patient monitoring or hospital at home or digital, some sort and saying, listen, let's just pool our resources just and create a, a limited venture 
together. And you could imagine that you start to have, you know, more than two or three hospitals. And then you could imagine maybe we'll bring some companies in there to actually be part of this. And it is a, as you point out, and, and actually this is the entire last chapter of the book, Beyond the Walls, you're going to love it. It speaks exactly to what you're saying. Although I think you're, you're taking it even beyond what I described. You know, it's really about the chapter is titled from disrupted to disruptor, the power of partnerships. And instead of just this sort of general horizontal mergers, this notion of you know merging very, very strategically in a limited way to really scale capabilities. Yep, that's exactly. Speaking my language for sure. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm excited because I suspect you'll push it beyond even where I went. Yeah, I know we don't have a lot of time. Let me shoot a couple of questions at you. I can't imagine how many new vendors and companies out there you see. What's exciting and new out there? Well, this isn't really virtual care in a sense, but I am a surgeon mm -hmm. at heart and there are some really, really cool things coming and emerging from a surgical intelligence perspective that I'm really excited about. I think there's going to be a huge transformation in surgical training moving forward. When I became, you know, when I learned to be a surgeon, it was like, see one, do one, teach one. You didn't really get a whole lot of feedback, maybe during your residency, but then you get kind of thrown out to like figure it out, tie on your bootstraps on your own. Once you're out of residency, limited mentorship occurs and you don't really get a lot of feedback about your performance other than when you have a complication or a happy patient in the office. And so what I'm seeing is not only an emergence of actual like computer vision, real time AI assisted feedback mechanisms to give clinicians to surgeons and feedback on how to improve their surgical skills, but also leveraging augmented reality or VR or new modalities of imaging coupled with like robotics and AI to actually assist the surgeon in the OR. And I think that's going to be like the next frontier in innovation. So I'm really excited about some of the, the platforms that are coming out in that space. Wow. Yeah. You definitely are a surgeon at heart. I can totally hear that. <laughs> And the internist in me is, what about interns? What about the, the clinical exam room? What are yes. you going to give me there? Yeah, so, okay, so let me go there. <laughs> let me go there. Okay, so I got to do a little pitch for MedPearl because we've been incubating this baby for, for a little over two years. But mm -hmm. okay, so medical knowledge doubles every 72 days, right? Right. As a clinician, it is just impossible to have everything in your head. And as a result of that, when we're in the exam room with the patient and we're seeing a patient and we're talking to them about something, you know, we don't always remember everything that needs to be done with that patient for, and especially for an internal medicine doc or a primary care doc who sees hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different types of conditions. And so what happens is a lot of dysfunction occurs, as you probably know, it's estimated that 50% of referrals that go to specialists have opportunities for improvement, meaning improved workup, maybe they went to the wrong specialist, or maybe they didn't need to see the specialist at all if the primary care doc had been armed with the right information. And that's a knowledge management issue. That's a knowledge sharing issue. And so what we've done over the past two years is we've 
collected and curated a knowledge base specifically designed and organized to fit into that workflow because the traditional knowledge bases that are out there like up to date they're not organized around workflow right to fit into the office visit and knowledge doesn't live inside the electronic health record so we've spent the last two years in this human-centered design program where we've really like leveraged the end users, the clinicians, the providers at the front lines to tell us how to design a solution, like a digital assistant solution around them, around their workflow, and to give feedback on the content that the specialists have generated around optimizing referrals into their practices. And so we're actually really proud of the impact that we've been able to make. And we're leveraging AI and large language models to support the curation safely with a data science team. And MedPearl, which is the digital assistant that we use today at Providence, is now, we started scaling it in January. We have over 2,700 provider users. Uh, the feedback mechanism that's built into the tool helps us continuously iterate on the knowledge base and improve it so that we're delivering information to the clinicians that meet their needs. Hmm. The impact has been amazing. 20% of the time, the providers say they don't need to refer the patient because the information they have from the uh, gives them what they need to manage up. And then 20% of the time they change the specialty that they send the patient to. So if, if you can imagine chronic cough, that could go to pulmonary, GI, allergy, or ENT. And so it's like, okay, you don't want them sending four different referrals. You also don't want them sending to the wrong specialist. There's quick guidance that could be provided to make a better decision. And then 72% of the time they say that it helps them improve the workup. Oh, it reminded me that I could start them on this first line on their way to see the specialist. So they have another data point when they get there or, oh, it reminded me to order this other lab before they get to the specialist. So we're really proud of that. And I think knowledge management, leveraging AI, going into the future. I mean, we have our own homegrown platform, but there's other products like this out on the market that are trying to solve a similar problem. I think that's going to be critical to upskilling our workforce, onboarding new clinicians, ensuring that advanced practice clinicians have the support and the guidance and the mentorship they need to manage up as well. And that's called MedPearl? Yep. MedPearl. And you all built that? We built it. Wow. No outside support. We, we built it from uh, bottoms up. I will tell you, I will tell you that the idea germinated during COVID through our partnership. We have a partnership with Microsoft. So the idea of the germination of the idea kind of came from Microsoft because we described this problem with them about the referral issue. And they actually came back to us with the concept of leveraging a chat bot to, right. to support it. So the concept came kind of from them, but the actual software build was through Providence Integria, which is our technology and services company that's a for-profit company that's that spun out from Providence. So they had the technology folks like my technology officer and the engineers came from that team. And then my team had the clinical content folks came from Providence. And yeah, it was a collaboration to build now, it. How many, couple of questions, how many hospital systems across the country do you think could do that, which you did? Not very many, <laughs> maybe yeah, Mayo Clinic. Yeah, I'm thinking two or three. Yeah, but what we did was we didn't build it for Providence. We built it for the world. Oh, so, oh, I, 
I get yeah. it. No, you're going to yeah. commercialize this. Yeah, no, it, it would be, <laughs> yeah, it would be hard to justify the return if you didn't. Second question. So it's like a, is it sort of like a chat GBT for doctors? It's not chat GPT in the sense that everything that's been generated and built from a content perspective has been built by clinicians. It's almost like okay. the back end is almost like a GitHub for doctors because it's a no code environment where, as you know, building these guidelines. So for example, rules around the referrals, you know, if it's, uh, I gave the chronic cough example, you need an allergist, pulmonary doc, ENT and GI doc to weigh in, right? So in an interdisciplinary fashion, and then you also want the primary care doc who's on the receiving end of the information to say, Hey, specialists, what you're writing in here doesn't make sense or whatever. So we created like a backend collaboration platform that's designed for clinical governance workflows. Wow. So all the content is built by clinicians in an interdisciplinary fashion. And then we leverage AI tools to help with suggesting for optimizing search to optimize sort of the content creation process, but everything still, because of the, you know, hallucinations and things like that that can happen with uh, chat GPT, we're not at a place where we're like handing that over to an LLM, but we're, we have a whole roadmap and trajectory to further start to integrate those tools into our process. Yeah, that's fantastic. So it is, it isn't just a chatbot, but it sounds like it also puts rules in around how to refer, criteria referrals, things like that, preparation for referrals, like you were mentioning. Right. So we have guides, like short, short guides. It's all designed to be consumed within one to two minutes that you would get the answer to how to do this, what to do with the patient sitting in front of you within one to two minutes. So we have guides that are quick, easy guides. Hmm algorithms and the algorithms are the more complex conditions. So for example, the number one searched algorithm right now is abnormal liver enzymes. And when you talk to a GI doc, they'll spit out this whole, you know, like, well, if the patient has, you know, this ALT is elevated and now process this, then you do this and then you start that. And then if it's this combination of things and you do that, well, it might be 87 different combinations of a uh, liver enzymes that could send you down different pathways, right? And that decision tree lives in the hepatologist's brain. Right. We are now putting a tappable experience for the clinicians to navigate through that or like a, a like a conversational experience for the clinician to navigate through that hepatologist algorithm that's in his brain, right? It's now digitized, it's not presented in a 47 page PDF with decision tree diagrams. It's presented more as a digital assistant that, you know, you don't have to see the 87 permutations. You just see the permutation that links to your patient. The next month we're going live with contextualization. So not only will the knowledge document surface and give you guidance around what to do, but also the patient data. So will surface in the context of that knowledge document so that you know whether or not pieces of the workup had been completed, if they had com been completed, what the results were, and you don't have to go digging into the chart, looking for those data points to put the picture together. And we have over 500 of these. So it constitutes about 95% of what a primary care doc would see. Wow. For. Yeah. You 500, like 550 guides and algorithms for different conditions. Yeah. Wow. 
So it sounds like it, part of it at least is, is also a referral management system. It is, but it was, I think that the problem Zeb, is that when you talk, everybody knows about this referral problem. I mean, and, right. it, and it causes access challenges, like that are so significant that patients end up waiting months and months to be seen. And then you end up with potentially bad outcomes as a result of it, poor care, or they migrate out of the system and go somewhere else and you lose track of them. So everybody knows about this problem. But when you would talk about the traditional approaches to solving it, the traditional approach was like, let's get all the docs together to have them refer to each other so they know, or let's do a grand rounds and educate right. primary care, or let's put like a, like a barrier in place that if they try to refer, we're just going to push it back. And it causes so much frustration. And what I kept saying was, because I was the chief medical officer of the medical group when the idea came up. And I would listen to the specialists and I would listen to primary care and all complained. And I said, this is a clinical problem. This is a clinical knowledge problem. And we're being asked the same questions over and over again. For example, I'm a, I'm a specialist, so I'll get the same question, but it's from 20 different doctors that can be automated, that can be captured. And so that's what we've been doing for the last two years is capturing that. Yeah, that's so funny because that's what I was actually thinking in my head is that one of the ways you probably went about this was talking to the specialists and asking them, what questions do you get asked or get sent referrals for that the primary care doctor could do, could accomplish if they had some of your knowledge? Right. So we're democratizing their knowledge. I almost like, it's almost like an automated e-consult, right? Yeah. So before it, it doesn't require a human on the other end. And we actually did a natural language processing crosswalk with our knowledge base and e-consults. And we had an 82% match rate. So if you can imagine, you still need e-consults. You still need the capability to do e-consults, but maybe you don't need to do as many of them. Maybe 60% of them or 70% of them could be solved with some automated content that gets served up to the clinician. And then if they still don't get the answer to their question, that's when they escalate to the e-consult. Because there's a lot of hesitation from the specialists to do e-consult because they don't want to get overwhelmed, right? Right. Right. This is like a, like a balance. So that's kind of how we're, we're positioning it. Got and it. it's been really, it's been a fun project. I will tell you, I did not have any experience in product management, product development, you know, building a product from scratch. And so I went to the school of hard knocks for that. I would recommend if there's a way somebody could get more formalized education in that, mm-hmm. it would be great, but it's been a phenomenal experience to see a product go from idea all the way to scale across one of the largest health systems in the country to soon being able to offer it to other health systems. No, that's brilliant. A couple of quick questions. One is I've been asked this question, so I'm going to pawn it off on you as the expert. Does digital and virtual lead to fragmentation of care? It does if it's leading to fragmentation of care in some areas. Not everywhere, but in some areas. The stuff that I've been telling you about, our telestroke, our telepsychiatry, MedPearl, RPM, that's all within our care continuum of our health system. All of that information goes into our EMR. We know where the patient is on the journey, right? Like there's a connection point. But what is happening that is concerning me quite a bit is the fragmentation that's incurring from a retail perspective. Mm. Not to say that the retail is bad. I think the reason why retail is so attractive to so many people is because it's so convenient, right? Mm -hmm. 
especially when we talk about asynchronous care, which I've been like kind of, that's my new drum that I've been beating. Hey guys, we need to have asynchronous care pathways. Mm -hmm. We need to have virtual primary care for, you know, primary care, virtual first capabilities, because that's getting siphoned off. And then what happens is, and, and this has happened to me myself where I'm in, I'm in clinic and I see a patient and they did some retail clinic for their birth control, but then now they're having a problem with their birth control. So I have no record. I have no information. It's not integrated with my electronic health record. And so that's where I'm seeing fragmentation. And and I've been sort of saying, Hey guys, we can do this. Like we should be able to provide these digital first experiences for our patients. Okay. Maybe our legacy EMR is not the easiest to set that up. So let's work with a technology company that can set that up and connect it to our EHR. But at the end of the day, we have the workforce, we have the expertise, we have the capabilities. We need to get into this space or we need to partner with a retail partner right. and right. connect it into our system. Right. And so that's that's where the most concerning fragmentation, I would say, is happening. Yeah. There's yeah. also a lot of point solutions out there that right. are like, we talked about that at the conference. Like we don't have an appetite to have what I call vendor diarrhea. Like we just, we, we have to be <laughs> selective about how many vendors we bring in and manage in the organization. It's just, it's too unwieldy. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that's also a function of having a better platform. You know, I think your fragmentation issue is you got CVS, but then there's another player called Amazon. And yep. my wife just went on the other day and there were about, I don't know, 10 or 12 different conditions that they were offering treatments, direct treatments for people. It's pretty interesting. I don't think that's going to stop. That's not going to stop, but there's no reason that we can't offer that experience. Yeah. Ourselves. Oh, I, well, again, that goes back to, you know, kind of what I was saying. I'd love to follow up with you. You know, chapter nine of my book is, you know, is really about why aren't we platforms and we should be hospitals started that way. And they were the place where patients came and doctors came and we were the platform in the community for health and healthcare. And so I do think we ought to go back to the future. Here you are, you're standing in front of a thousand CEOs and C-suite executives from hospital systems across the country. And you've got, you know, 30 seconds left and you're like, okay, here's my message to you from a digital health officer, virtual health officer perspective. What are you going to say to them? Well, I would say that virtual and digital is our our way forward into the future. And we have to 10X. My goal is to 10X what we're doing in the next five years, because that's what's going to keep us afloat as an organization. We have to change. Traditional healthcare delivery is not sustainable in its current state. You have to start integrating all of this into the way you do your daily business and it's critical for the path forward into the future. It's critical to addressing the patient experience, the capacity concerns, the workforce challenges, winning the hearts and minds of the workforce so that they stay loyal to the organization. Right? So that's what I would say. And please, please, please continue to put as much advocacy pressure you can place on from an, a government advocacy perspective mm-hmm. to continuing to support reimbursement of these programs, support continued innovation, transformation, because you know everybody's struggling right now. And 
if you have to make an investment to stand a program like this up, it's it's just completely disheartening when the reimbursement model, you know, expires and goes away or something. That's one of the risks. And so it's it's important for us as a community, for our hospital systems and healthcare systems to ensure that we are educating our legislators and lobbying and supporting continuation of these programs. Abby, you you are a beyond the walls leader. It's just so wonderful to hear you talk and share your knowledge and your experience and your vision. So I can't thank you enough. Hope we have a chance to continue talking uh, in the future. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, God, what a great pleasure. And as I do every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting those who are directly taking care of patients. I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. This is Zeb Neuwirth on Creating New Healthcare. Until next time, be well.